You can grab a seat, everyone. The scripture reading for today's sermon comes from 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When, David, when they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why do you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall, so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter trouble you. For the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage them. 
When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you've despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin, you shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you've utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. So today we have a guest preacher who will be sharing with us about this passage. Our guest preacher is named Josh Chu. He comes to us from Emmanuel English Church. If you've been here before, when we've had my friend Evangel come preach to us, uh, Josh is from Evangel's Church. Uh, We, here at the bridge, a couple months ago, ran a a preaching course on how to prepare and give a sermon for people who aren't regular preachers. Um, We opened it up to some people from other churches, and Josh actually joined for that class. So he has never preached in a church on Sunday morning before. This is his first time ever. So I'm really excited to hear it and really excited to have him here with us today. Josh, can I pray for you before you start? All right, yeah, Father, we thank you for Josh. Thank you for bringing him here. Thank you for all the work that he's put into preparing to share your word with us today. Pray that you would speak through him powerfully, that you would give him your words to say and that you would draw us and our hearts towards you through this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Testing. Is it working? Great. I want to thank uh, Pastor Eric for this chance, and want to thank all of you 
uh, for this chance. Uh, yes, I am a rookie pastor, or preacher rather, uh, and so um, I hope that the Word of God comes through the Holy Spirit and not, and, and not, not, not from me, through me, but not from me. Um, and thank you, uh, all the brothers and sisters who've been leading us uh, worship this morning and prayer uh, and scripture reading. So today, the passage we're looking at is from 1 Samuel, and uh, we're also going to be uh, referencing from uh, one of David's psalms as well, uh, which was read this morning uh, by one of our sisters, uh, Psalm 51. Um, a few weeks ago, the same passage was introduced and taught at church, in my church, uh, at Emmanuel, to my two daughters. I have two daughters, one is six and one is five. And my wife is in charge, who's here today, um, Alice, my wife in the back, is in charge of the curriculum. And so obviously she knows what's being taught and, and so forth. But the way I found out about uh, this particular story that was taught that Sunday was when I heard uh, one of the younger boys in our church after the service co- constantly repeating the, the, the name Bathsheba. But he was not able to pronounce it well, so he kept saying Black Sheba. So it was going around Black Sheba, Black Sheba, and later on I think he turned it into like a Power Ranger, the Black Sheba. So it was quite funny and cute. Um, When we got home, uh, I asked my girls what they remembered from today's Bible story. And while they could recall some basic uh, plot points and relationships from the passage, understandably, you know, as little kids, uh, there were many gaps in their retelling of the story. But when I asked again, what they learned from the story, they were able to at least say this to me. They said, even when we sin in secret, God knows. I was like, ooh, okay. Even when we sin in secret, God knows. Sounds like a threat, doesn't it? Well, most of us here, I would say uh, all of us here, except for one, perhaps, except for Judah, is is not a six or five-year-old, right? So, um, that's our baseline, okay? If, if you uh, get nothing out of today's sermon, remember this. Even when we sin in secret, God knows our heart, and His mercy is meant to lead us to repentance. Let me read the second part again. His mercy is meant to lead us to repentance. Let's pray. Father God, this morning we want to ask that you enlighten our hearts to receive your word and give us the spirit of wisdom and understanding so that we see how great you are towards us who believe, so that we can be secured in the eternal hope that we find in Jesus Christ. Today's passage, it's long, but it tells the readers of the heinous crimes that King David had committed against God. But first of all, who is King David? Colin shared a little bit about, you know, David and his life and, and how he stumbled. And, and that's the story that we'll be looking at today. Uh, in the early chapters of First um, and Second Samuel, if we could go to the next slide, that's usually the David we recall, right? The David who is against Goliath and winning over uh, this battle uh, for, Christ, uh, for, for God. Um, so in First and Second Samuel, the text tells us that he was a lowly shepherd, but anointed as king while he was still a boy, long before David finally took the throne. Then the Lord gave him the victory over Goliath and protected him against Saul, the former king of Israel, and his jealous rages. David eventually married the king's daughter 
and upon the death of Saul and his sons became king over all Judah and Israel. David went on to make Jerusalem be his capital. He defeated the Philistines and returned the Ark of Covenant back to Jerusalem and was then successful in numerous other battles. So up to this point in the story of David, he has been immensely blessed and protected by God and has been portrayed as an ideal servant of the God of Israel. In addition to rising to power from a humble beginning as a shepherd, David was also a man of many talents. As we know, later on, we will be referencing to one of his psalm in Psalm 51. But today, our passage tells about none of these great deeds. Instead, it portrays David as a greedy, lustful, murderous tyrant who abuses his power to get what he wants. If you have your Bibles with you, whether it's a physical Bible or a phone, I, I encourage you to turn to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 11. Uh, we're going to be going through passages together. Um, chapter 11, verse 1, states that while David's army was out battling at Rabbah, David stayed back in Jerusalem. Verse 2, 5 tells us, while David was chilling in his casa, up high in Jerusalem, he saw a woman bathing outside. He then inquired about her, took her in, slept with her, causing her to become pregnant. Now, I think it's important to note here that um, David already has many wives, uh, at least five, uh, as a matter of fact, and several concubines. In verse three, uh, verse three tells us that David knew Bathsheba was married to Uriah, but he took her in anyway and, and laid with her. I believe at this point, David knew what he did was wrong. And there was nothing honorable about anything that he's doing. But what, he, what did he do after that? What did he do after knowing that this shameful act of his was about to be exposed with the coming of a baby? Did he repent to God and made up with Uriah? Well, apparently not. Now, the rest of chapter 11 outlines his attempts to cover up his sin with more sinning. In verses 8 and 13, we see that two times David tried to cover up his adulterous acts with Bathsheba by calling Uriah back from battle and urged him to go home and lay with his wife, hoping to make it seem like the baby in Bathsheba's tummy was Uriah's. But Uriah, not knowing about what was, was happened, obviously, refused to go home. As we learn from earlier chapter in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 21, uh, men abstained from women during a military exp expedition. That explains why Uriah thought uh, it was not appropriate for him to go back home at that time. Uh, because uh, the siege at Rabbah has not yet been won. And so he considered himself still in battle mode and therefore unwilling to go home with his wife. This, what does this tell us? This reflects that his, his loyalty to his commander, Joab, who's still on the battlefield and alongside with all his fellow warriors, um, you know, his loyalty and, and, and uh, his, his faithfulness to his uh, uh, fellow men. If you were David, you were his king or his boss or his teacher or, you know, someone who su supervises him. 
wouldn't you be touched by this level of loyalty and integrity? If you knew you have wronged someone who had such integrity, would it move you to at least a little to want to apologize to him? Um, maybe try to make up for the wrongs you've done? Well, as we can tell from the story, that's not what David did. Not only was David not impressed with Uriah's loyalty to him and his army, David exploited that loyalty by asking Uriah in verse 14 to send his own death sentence back to Joab, who is on the battlefield. Verse 14 and 15 says, In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. Now, Joab followed the written order from, from David without question and sent Uriah to the front line, then drew back the other men, and Uriah was then killed by the enemy. Uh, here's a quick fact. Uh, did you know <laughs> that the distance between Jerusalem on the left uh, to, and to the city of Rabbah, uh, at one point during uh, the Greek period, uh, that city is called Philadelphia. Um, and now it, uh, mo- this is modern-day uh, Ammon, the capital of Jordan. Uh, the distance between Jerusalem and, and, and Rabbah is actually approximately 70 kilometers. That's actually the same distance as the Lantau Trail. So if anyone wants to find out how it would feel for Uriah to you know, come from battlefield back to Jerusalem and then from Jerusalem back to Rabbah, you could do that. <laughs> you could hike around the trail. Imagine this, though. Um, this journey takes t- at least two, if not four days, to travel. And David trusted that Uriah to be a righteous man of integrity who would not open his letter to expose the murderous scheme that David had for Uriah. Most of us would agree that David abused his power and intentionally murdered his loyal men with, his hand, uh, with the hands of the, his enemies in order to cover up his sin. Look at verse 17. What's worse is not only Uriah died, but some of David's other men died as well as a result of this stage murder. How terrible. Like we wouldn't even accept this modern day time, right? I, I don't need even to explain how terrible that is to you. So if we stop here, would you say that David was successful in cover up his sin? Do you know anyone that's like this around you? Have you ever been like this, trying to cover up your sin? In verse 27, we know that he even married Bathsheba after Uriah's death, completing the, his act of stealing Uriah's wife. Then there was a twist in the story. Um, if you're still at your Bible, let's turn to chapter 12. It starts like this. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Now, who's, Na- who's Nathan? Nathan was a prophet in the court of King David. He went on to tell a story about a rich man stealing from a poor man. And what was David's reaction when we heard the story? Was he like, ah, yeah, these things happen all the time. It may happen to you or me, you know, it's okay. No, being the righteous king and judge whom he should be over Israel, he was mad. He was mad. And David knew what was right from wrong. He was clear-minded He was not confused about what justice would look like for the rich man in the story um, who stole from the poor man in the, uh, uh, you know, the the ewe lamb. 
the rightful and just consequence according to the law was that the rich man should die. He should die. Then Nathan boldly pronounced that the rich man depicted in the story was David himself. Shocking, right? For, for someone who knew what he did, what would go through in, in your mind if you were David? Would you be like, I got to find a way to kill Nathan now? Or would it be, I'm going to die now. That was me. I deserve the death. God's going to punish me the same way, or even worse, the way I sentenced the rich man in the story. David was the king of the land who practically had everything he wanted and more. Yet he stole the wife of Uriah and killed him in cold blood. But as we know, like my daughters did after they heard the story, even when, next slide please, even when David sinned in secret, God knows our hearts. Does that bring joy to you? Is that satisfaction in the knowledge of that? Let's again stop here for a moment and think. You might be thinking to yourself now, okay, first, what does this story have to do with me anyway? I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not an adulterer. I'll never do such a thing. I'll never sleep with another person's wife or husband, let alone murder someone. That's not me. That's not who I am. That's not what I will be doing anyway. When my wife knew I was going to give a sermon this, this morning on this passage, uh, she said to me, I was quite surprised. She said, uh, of all the men that she knew in the world, I would be the last one on earth that she would worry about falling into temptation and sin similar to David. Wow. I mean, that felt good and sort of boosted my ego for a little while. But because I love my wife and I want my marriage relationship with her to be built on honesty and truth, I had to say this. I mean, I had to tell her, don't trust me to not have these temptations. It's, it's a wrong expectation. Um, as far as I know, all men, as far as I know, all men, including me, your husband is going to have lustful thoughts and temptations that by nature, I'm prone to fall. And even David, one of most blessed by God in human history, can fall into the trap of pursuing lustful desires that are sinful and destructive. We should not underestimate the power our desires have over our thoughts and actions. These desires may not always appear bad and sinful at first. Think about, you know, it could start off as a desire for intimacy. You know, I want to be intimate with someone. I want to, ha I want to have intimate relationship with, with, with people, but end up being an addiction to sex. It could be a desire to amass more wealth, power, and influence for good causes, good causes that end up sacrificing your integrity. Or it could be just the desire for comfort and security. I just want some comfort and security that eventually drives us to manipulate and steal from others. Let's come back to David's story. Come back to um, chapter 12. And look carefully at what God declared through Nathan. Verse 7. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the land of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. 
verse 9. Why have you for despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? The word despise here means to show contempt for, to think lightly, or of little value. What was David accused of despising? What was David accused of, despi uh, of despising? The word of the Lord. Yes, David had broken the Ten Commandments uh, for, for us who maybe followed the the reading uh, plan, although I don't know what the reading plan here at the church is, but, you know, the Ten Commandments from, the, from Exodus, um, he, David has certainly broken a few of those commandments by coveting his servant's wife, committing adultery and murder. But note that what ultimately angered and hurt God most was that he despised God's word, replacing them with his own desires. Essentially, before David even acted on his sins, he had already broken the first of the Ten Commandments, which reads, you shall have no other gods before me. David may have initially desired something noble, perhaps it was beauty, which in itself can be a very good and godly pursuit. But rather than turning to God to have that desire fulfilled, he chose to take things into his own hands and try to fulfill it by coveting and eventually stealing what he saw to be beautiful. Isn't this the same pattern we struggle with at times? We may not end up acting out on our lustful desires the same way David did or become a murderer, but are we in the habit of replacing God with who we love or what we love in life? In other words, are the spokes of our wheel misplaced away from the center? Are you guys familiar with spokes and wheels? You know how wheels work? You, know, you know, have a spoke right in the middle so that the wheel can turn. Um, how would a wheel spin if that happens, if we replace that spoke on the wheel? Uh, just pull out this GIF I found. I mean, it's comical, but imagine that bike is what, it's your ride to life. How would that feel for 10 years, 20 years, 50 years? on that bike with the wheel, you know, misplaced, uh, its spokes misplaced. If we desire to place God in the center of our lives, we ultimately need to realize more than just how God wants us to behave. So yeah, it may not be so clear, but more than just how God wants us to behave, but who, more importantly, who God is and what he desires from us. And let that orientate our lives. Letting God and who he is to turn that wheel of ours. So let me share with you a quote I pulled from a, a video interview uh, with apologist and author Rachel Gilson. I don't know if any of you have read her book. It's called Born Again This Way, uh, which is about her struggles with same-sex attraction and how she came to faith and how the gospel of Jesus Christ ultimately satisfied her innermost desires. Uh, she said in this interview, Sometimes, when we talk about ethics in a way that, that's cut off from God's character, we end up emphasizing the no's, here's what not to do. Or we can even emphasize what we should do in a way that's kind of sterile and cut off from his character. Isn't it true? This is why when we try to tell uh, our non-believing family members about 
or friends about you know, what they ought or not, ought not to do based on our Christian ethical standards, it usually backfires, doesn't it? What are some of the scenarios? Either they do it to shut you up, you know, but when you're not around, they'll do it anyway. Or they would outright call you a bigot or an ethics police and ignore advice altogether. And when a Christian is thinking about whether they should sin and be against the way Scripture is teaching us to live, are we simply afraid of being exposed and have our reputation ruined before others? Or do we trust that God and His Scriptures are holy and that we should really submit to it because He loves us, that He is full of mercy and is eager to restore us? Which is it? When my girls were still babies, um, uh, as many of you parents would, would understand, it, it was easier to condition them to do what they want, or to do what we want, uh, rather, as parents. Um, if we wanted them to eat, uh, not eat too much of certain things or like not be in front of the screen nowadays, you know, like uh, for too long, uh, all, all we had to do as parents is just remove it, right? Just take the food away, just take the screen away, switch it off, you know. And, you know, at first they might cry a little and, and be annoyed about it. But after a little while, they learn what's allowed and what's not, right? And then sooner or later, you just need to, like, stare at them or, like, give them a little, little you know, saying that they will know what to do. Um, but as they grew older, uh, if we keep using the same method by taking things away with little or no explanation, what would they do? They would start throwing tantrums and they would say hurtful things like, I hate you. I hate hearing that. No, don't say that. <laughs> but they do. They, they will say that. So, so what I've learned and still learning is to be prepared to explain why what they're doing is wrong or harmful um, and what are some of the natural consequences that may arise. Uh, for example, the other day I said, girls, I know those tabioca, you know what those things are? Like boba, like the black little pearls. They're yummy. Yes, I know. But you, if you eat too much in one go, you're going you're gonna to feel sick in your stomach. So once you said that, either, you know, they decided that you're right, you know, put it away, or they just have to eat a lot at once and feel that, you know, stomach hurting and then learn from it, right? In Matthew 7, in the New Testament, Jesus said, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? As a child of our parents, as we all were or are, we had to learn to trust them that their intentions for us are good, even though we may not understand that at first. And as a child of God, David knew he was loved by God. And the best thing to do after he was exposed was to turn away from his sin and run back to God the Father and to repent of his sins. So let us take a look at David's repentance today. Starting uh, chapter 2, verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. After Nathan listed many horrible consequences for his sin, um, David responded in repentance and immediately re received forgiveness. 
So what happened there? I mean, it's a short passage. It's a short turnaround as well. What are the signs that David's repentance was genuine? How can we learn that this uh, repentance is genuine for him? And what can we learn from this genuine repentance? So for that, that's why we, um, our, our sister kindly read Psalm 51 this morning. Um, and in the ESV, it's titled, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Uh, with the caption, A Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. In the interest of time, uh, we will not read the whole psalm again, uh, but I want to use some of the verses in the psalm to suggest four signs of genuine godly repentance. Um, So again, if you have your Bible, I really suggest you turn to Psalm 51 and follow with me. Uh, Let me read verse 4. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. First, David knew that the one most offended by his sin was who? Was God. Was God. Not once in his psalm did David whine about the consequences of his sin or ask God to miraculous, uh, miraculously remove them. David knew he's, he deserved those consequences. And David was ultimately not sorry for the consequences of sin, but for the sin itself and how it has offended God. Verse 16 to 17. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I will give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So second point here is David's repentance was honest and motivated by godly sorrow. This is a clear contrast to how his predecessor, Saul, had responded to his own sin. If we turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 15, God gave clear instructions to Saul through Samuel, uh, the prophet, that he was to completely destroy everything from the city of Amalek because of their sins. But instead, Saul spared the king and the best of their animals as spoil to be brought back to Israel. And when Samuel was confronted Uh, Sorry, when Samuel confronted Saul about this, Saul lied and said that the animals were spared so that they could be presented as a sacrifice to God. Samuel then said in verse uh, 22, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. David understood that God wasn't ultimately looking for any sort of repayment from us, but instead for our desire to listen and to be close to Him. So th- this leads, me, uh, leads us to our next point. Um, let me read verse 10 from Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. So the third point here is that David's repentance desires a change of heart, not just external actions. Finally, I read from verse 7 to 9. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. 
David's sin was heinous, but the grace of God was more than sufficient to forgive and to restore him. And so the final point is that David looked to God as the only one with the power to remove sin and to restore him. Let me repeat those four points for you again. Point number one, David knew that the one most offended by his sin was God. Second, David's repentance was honest and motivated by godly sorrow. Third, David's repentance desires a change of heart, not just external actions. And fourth, David looked to God as the only one with the power to remove sin and to restore him. So today we examine the story from the Bible and saw how even David, a man after God's own heart, can lose to temptations and fall into sin. However, even when he was deep in sin, God desired for David to repent, turning away from sin and returning back to God and his words. And by examining Psalm 51, we learn that the true repentance is the four points that I've just mentioned. So when was the last time that you repented? When was the last time that you repented of your sins before God? And was it, would you say it was easy or would you say it was hard? And why? For those of us who believe that God's commands and ethical standards are worth keeping, why is it sometimes still so hard for us to repent when we slip? Would we at times prefer to cover up our sins by hiding or deceiving rather than going to God with a repentant heart? In David's case, perhaps he didn't see a way out of his sin. It's clearly written in the law that by committing adultery meant that he could face capital punishment. He would die. Even if he were able to get away with, uh, with it by asserting his power as king, he would probably lose the loyalty and respect of this people. So he would rather murder and have others killed than to be punished for sins. Perhaps he saw that the consequences of being exposed seem too far to bear. Is that how we feel at times? That our sins, the consequences of our sins are just too great to bear? Are we afraid that the cost of being exposed is greater than being entrenched in sin? David's sin deserved death, yes. But because God is merciful, he accepted David's broken and contrite heart and spared him from death, as we saw from Scripture. If that was the case for David, then those of us who believe in Jesus and what he did on the cross for us should be confident in approaching God with a genuine heart of repentance and receive the forgiveness from God that will set us free from the bondage of sin. Don't make a mockery of Jesus by not going to the foot of the cross to confess our sins. Don't make a mockery of Jesus by not going to the cross to confess our sins. If you think your sin is too great for forgiveness or too small to bother God, and then you walk away from whom you know is the only one able to forgive our sins, then you are mocking what Jesus has done on the cross for us, his sufferings, his death, for what he did for you and me on the cross. God's kindness and mercy toward us are fully displayed through Jesus who lived the righteous life we could not live and has already paid the price of our sins we could not afford to pay. Believe that. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death. 
But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, God's kindness is meant to lead us to when we sin, we may still have to suffer through the consequences as David did. In subsequent passages, in fact, you will see that the, his first son with Bathsheba would die. And later, the rest of his family would get into a whole lot of mess, a whole lot of mess that, you know, shook the entire nation of Israel. And, and those are the kind of mess that that's why we don't like reading the Old Testament. But, but that's the mess we get into when we don't have Jesus. But by, by returning to God and have the joy of his salvation restored in us is worth more than any temporary relief you think you are securing yourself by hiding away from the light. Think about it. Meditate on that. His mercy is more than any sin we have, yet to com- we have and yet to commit. His mercy is meant to lead us to repentance, not to run away, not to be afraid, but to go back to God in repentance. So lastly, uh, for those who would find models useful, uh, for those who, of you who are, I don't know, business consultants or like uh, uh, marketing consultants, uh, you, you, you might come across a lot of models uh, that you either give your clients or you, someone gives to you. And so I know, I know, I know like how some, sometimes we'll feel about models. Um, but I want to introduce one to you. Uh, it's something I learned when Pastor Eric uh, and I participated in the city-to-city intensive course. And this mo- model is called the holistic repentance model. If you find it useful, great. If you don't, bear with me. Like most models, this is meant to give us a framework, okay? A framework to guide our thinking and understanding. And in this case, it can be used to guide our approach towards having godly repentance. Uh, the model encourages us to think about repentance in four directions, When we have identified our sin and we look upward and ask the question, how does the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus take care of the sin? Again, don't diminish what Jesus has already done for us on the cross. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy uh, 1, verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, says, the Paul, says Paul. Go to Jesus who came to us. Go to him with your sins and ask him to help you. And in David's case, Jesus had not yet come to complete the work of salvation, but even then he knew how to trust in God's merciful and loving character to remove his sin. Uh, I, I, I read again from Psalm 51, but this time from verse 1 to 2. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly for my, for my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So after looking upward, we look forward and ask the question, what do I need in order to get into the light with my gospel community? This is your gospel community, your church. Um, in David's case, uh, sorry, in, in, in other words, uh, how, how do I invite the right people into my life to prevent me from sinning or falling into the same temptations again? What accountable relationships do I need to get into? Now, for those who are married, uh, I think it's, it would first and foremost be your spouse um, that you'll be able to do that with. And for those who are single, it may be your pastor, your small group members uh, or leaders. Um, 
And within the same group of trusted brothers and sisters, we also look backward um, and confess anything from the past that is hindering us from bringing this sin to light. Uh, So next slide, please. And ask the question, what do I need to confess uh, to my gospel community? In David's case, we saw how important it was for Nathan the prophet to step forward and kept David accountable. And David responded by repenting of his sin. Now, I can understand why you might feel or hesitate to be in an accountable relationship at all. Um, It would mean that you need to be comfortable with being vulnerable to others. And for some of us, it means being comfortable with others approaching you with their vulnerability. Well, because God um, intends to use community from the very start and often refers you know, to it in the Bible as the church or the body of Christ to build up our faith. So imagine trying to light a candle, a candle uh, without its wax. Okay, trying to light a candle without its wax. You may be able to burn the dry wick for a little while, but, you know, it wouldn't last very long. Only when the wick is attached to the wax around it can the flame burn long and bright. Imagine yourself being the wick and the wax that's wrapping around it is your church, uh, who is there to support you and to give you fuel in your flame of repentance. Finally, we look downward to ask this question. How might I look at the sin and explore this, its damage to me, my community, and Christ? A few questions to consider when looking downward into repentance are, how might I take a closer look at my heart and the sin? How can I honestly and specifically confess this to Jesus? How has the sin damaged me, my family, and my community? And how has this sin How is this sin my enemy seeking to destroy me? Whenever we are tempted to sin again, remind ourselves of the answers to these questions. However, equally important, actually very, very important, is to consider doing this uh, part with other Christians by your side, other Christians in your gospel community, so that you can be reminded to answer these questions in light of the gospel. If we focus only on how much sin affects us and the people around us, we could easily be crushed. So in closing, uh, my final question to you all uh, as you uh, walk away and think about this is, having learned about this holistic repentance model now, what steps are you going to take to help you and your brothers and sisters at the bridge practice genuine repentance? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father God, we are so thankful that you are a merciful God, that you are full of compassion, that you are gracious, that you are slow to anger, that you are full of steadfast love and that you are faithful even when we are not. God, we also know that you are a God who is just. You do not turn a blind eye on sin and you allow sin to have its consequences play out so that we know how hurtful and how damaging they are. But your grace and your love was fully displayed in the life of Jesus Christ, your only Son whom you have sent to die and suffer for our sins and paid the price that we cannot afford to pay. So God, I pray that as we read your word, as we examine our own hearts, 
we do not only come to the conclusion that you know our hearts and that you're there to condemn us, but we come to the conclusion of who you are and what you ultimately desire from us, which is to turn away from all of these sin and to come back to you because you see our worth more than we see ourselves. You have already accepted us through Jesus Christ. And I just pray that God, this this truth will live in our hearts and we will remind each other in, in in the Bridge Church that we can turn back to you with our sins and confess them and repent them. And in return, you will give us the joy of your salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.